Fellow Traveller by Jasper Lestrange I was driving, but I am not sure where to. I only know I was in no great urgency to get there. I had the strangest sensation of having driven in a dream. It was alarming and frightening, finding myself so many miles from home and behind the wheel of a motor car. Indeed, when I came out of my trance, I instinctively twisted the steering wheel, and the car swerved with the dramatic screech of its tyres until I righted it, blinking and swearing. I was lucky that the road was empty. It was dark there, with only the pool of light from the headlamps to pierce the inky blackness. It was as if I was following that light down an endless tunnel, the walls of which were formed on either side by bushes and trees. It was an altogether disconcerting feeling, having no clue where I was and really how I had got there. I had only a dim remembrance of the journey behind me, the miles marked not by road signs, but by changes of brick and stone. It was only when I started to notice the names of towns and cities that I realised quite how far down I was. My hands trembled on the wheel. There was a knot in my stomach. When I swallowed, my mouth was dry and tasted of metal. I turned my head quickly. I had glimpsed something in the headlight's beam, a sign that slipped by so fast I ought to have missed it. It had been a sandwich board in the grass verge at the side of the road. I caught maybe a handful of letters, but my racing mind was able to fill in the gaps. Jack's Café, Hot Food, Teas, Coffees, Beds. I drew a breath. Fortune was smiling on me. I would be able to stop, refresh myself, work out where I was. Even if the place turned out to be closed, there would at least be somewhere to park and gather my senses. As I looked around, though, it seemed perfectly hopeless. The road continued to unspool ahead of me, with no break in the surrounding thicket to indicate civilization, let alone a transport cafe. The minutes and miles passed, and I began to wonder if I had either missed a turn-off, impossible, or if I had misread or even imagined the sign. Then another thought struck me, that perhaps the sign had been a deception of some kind, a cruel practical joke, and I felt suddenly, inexplicably, ridiculously angry, my fingers tightening on the wheel. That anger was almost immediately dispelled, however. The road opened without warning, and another, much bigger sign for Jack's indicated the turn right into a spacious forecourt. I cannot adequately describe the sense of relief for the change from the dull thrum of tyre on blacktop to the crunch of gravel under my wheels was comforting beyond expression, but although the place was not especially well lit, after so long in the oppressive gloom, it dazzled. 
The building was larger than I had expected, and shrouded as it was in partial darkness and the shadows cast by looming trees, somewhat hard to make sense of. There was a low, flat-roofed portion at the front, a more recent addition, judging by the brickwork, and mounted on the overhanging lip of the roof were variously coloured light bulbs in a not perfectly alternating sequence of red, yellow and green. Also situated on the roof was the name Jacks, spelt out in individual letters like the famous Hollywood sign, but a fraction of the size. Behind that, the old building stood, or at least part of it, for there had evidently been numerous extensions and alterations over the years. These different sections jutted out at surprising angles, and some of them climbed upwards into spire-capped turrets, giving the bizarre impression of a black forest castle, leading a double life as a British greasy spoon. I followed the track that led around to the rear of the establishment, to a large parking area. There were two lorries parked close together, and a moped, but otherwise it was empty. It was with intense relief that I brought the car to a standstill, and turned off the engine. I unlocked my fingers from the steering wheel, and heard the tiny click of bones as I flexed them. My back was stiff, as were my legs. I felt impossibly tired. But horribly awake, too. Every nerve on edge. Outside the car, I stretched and moved my head from side to side. I glanced over at the two lorries and wondered if their drivers were in the cafe or inside their cabins. Everything was dark and silent, save for the hiss of rustling leaves from the surrounding forest. Then I noticed there was a large outbuilding. I could just perceive the sign for toilets and washing facilities. I made my way back to the entrance. The need to quench my thirst had become urgent, and although I am not by nature a sociable person, so had the need to set eyes on another human face. That the outside lights were on was a good indication that I would soon be satisfied on both scores. Even better was the light within that showed through the glass panels of the front door. But it was impossible to see further inside, for the glass was emblazoned with all manner of stickers and notices. They seemed to promise an unlikely cave of wonders, assuring the availability of ice lollies, fizzy drinks, milkshakes, and Duckham's engine oil, while another proudly stated, We accept LV luncheon vouchers. Furthermore, there were three signs. One said, good food. Another, open all hours. And the third, friendly welcome guaranteed. And since, as anyone who has lived in England will testify, all three propositions are equally uncommon, the seduction was complete. A bell chimed as I pushed the door open, and I passed through a narrow space with coat hooks and a rack with leaflets that opened out into a dining area. Rows of tables with depressing brown formica tops were anchored to the floor with often mismatched plastic chairs around them. The fluorescent strip lighting was harsh and shone so brightly on the chessboard patterned linoleum that you could follow the ghost trail of dirty water back to its source 
a mop and bucket propped against the wall in a far corner of the room. The floor was tacky underfoot. Only two tables were occupied, I presumed by the drivers whose lorries were parked outside. Unlike their vehicles, they were set quite apart. They were as different as could be. The first, sitting nearest the entrance, wore the blue overalls of a motor mechanic and a grimy peaked cap. He was lean, haggard-looking, brown from sunshine and filth. He raised his head to grunt at me as I passed, and then returned his gaze to his cup of coffee, staring into it as if some mystery could be lurking just beneath the black surface. In one dark, leathery hand, apparently forgotten, he held a half-eaten sandwich, white bread stained by oily fingerprints. The other man sat nearer to the counter I approached. He had his enormous back to me, and his bulbous right elbow was sticking out at an angle while he shoveled egg, chips and beans into his mouth with impressive speed. His head was pointed downwards to shorten the distance between plate and maw. He did not acknowledge me, but as I waited at the counter I heard him put his knife and fork on his plate and then the scrape of his chair as he got up to leave. I could hear sounds of angry activity in the unseen kitchen, but nobody had yet appeared to serve me. Instead I drummed my fingers on the countertop, my eyes wandering first to a jar hopefully labelled Tips, containing some foreign-looking coins, a shirt button, and some pocket fluff and then to a poster on the wall that advertised Pall Mall cigarettes. I could not have told you at that moment what exactly it was that caught my attention. The poster showed a pretty girl, a brunette, lying on her back in a patch of lush green grass, a cigarette held between two slender fingers, white smoke coiling from the parted mouth. It was a deliberately enticing image but a commonplace one, with nothing else much to look at, my gaze had quite naturally fallen on her. Yet there was something about the languid pose, the dark, suggestive eyes. A memory stirred, that stubbornly refused to coalesce. The vision of the cigarette girl was blocked by the real woman who now stood in front of me. "'What are you after?' she said brusquely. She was grey-haired and grey-faced, and lacked both the physique and demeanour to carry off the pale pink waitress's uniform she was no doubt required to wear. I had yet to speak, but she was already viewing me through narrow, mistrustful eyes, and I could not easily determine if it was suspicion of all men or simply of me. I decided not to compound her suspicions by asking where I was. It would sound odd, and besides, I already had a rough idea, even if I could not say exactly. Instead, I asked for a cup of tea, which my waitress promptly fetched and set down with such ungraciousness that I even gasped. So much for a friendly welcome, I thought. I took a table, adjacent to the one at which the fat lorry driver had been sitting. His plate was still there, more or less scraped clean, 
with only the faintest orange smear of baked bean juice to show its use. I had seen uncouth fellows pick up their plates to lick them clean before. I wondered absently if he had done so. The tea, dark brown and sugary, refreshed and invigorated me, and I called over to the waitress to bring me another, a request she responded to with an audible tut and much theatrical huffing and puffing. As I drank my second cup, I caught the eye of the thin driver. He had lately given up the philosophical pondering of his coffee, and was now staring directly at me, or past me, as I quickly realised, for he made no acknowledgement when I returned his gaze. I turned and deduced that he must be looking at the wall-mounted clock. "'No rest for the wicked,' his gruff voice said. Turning again, I saw that he had stood up, and was now straightening his peaked cap, ready to go. He had left the blackened crusts of his sandwich. "'Oh, yes,' I said awkwardly. I have never excelled at small talk, and I felt acutely the myriad differences between us. "'Got a long journey ahead of you, have you?' "'Southampton,' he shrugged. "'Not too far now. Always stop here, though.' Best place for miles. And Brenda always looks after our boys. Don't you, Brend? he called out, adding with a wink, in more ways than one. Cheeky sod, she called back. And when I looked over my shoulder, I saw that her face was now arranged in a manner meant to be provoking and flirtatious. The hand on her hip was clutching a rancid tea towel. I suffered through a minute of their sexual teasing, before silently slipping away. I found a lavatory cubicle with a wash-basin, and stood at it to splash my face with cold water. Lingering there in front of the mirror, I studied my reflection. What was I doing? I asked myself. Was I heading somewhere, or running away from something? Again I saw and heard fragments puzzle pieces trying and refusing to come together. A woman, beautiful like the one in the picture, raised voices, an argument of some kind. Another splash of water, and she was gone. Cursing the power of advertising, I put a coin into the cigarette machine outside the cubicle, but the damn thing refused to dispense. The metal knob you pulled to make the cigarette packets drop into the drawer was stiff and would not budge. I ended up slapping the wooden side of the machine with my open hand, to no avail. I stared at the machine in disbelief, wondering how it had the nerve to be so solid and useless. And the next thing I knew I was shaking it violently, cursing under my breath. For in that moment the cigarette machine signified every bad, stupid and unjust thing that had ever blighted my life. And I shook, and shook, and shook. I think I might have shaken the thing from its moorings, had Brenda not come along and shoved me to one side. Which ones? she barked, and I pointed to the navy cuts. Of course, she pulled the knob out effortlessly, and we both heard the packet landing in the drawer. Sorry. I started to say, but she thrust the cigarettes at me and gave me an admonishing glare before storming off. The glare told me I had confirmed yet again 
all her worst conceptions about men. I left some spare change on the table next to my empty cup and headed back outside, my eyes trained solely on the door lest I make eye contact with the waitress again. When I was outdoors, I lit a cigarette and puffed on it and walked back round to the car park. I had by no means drawn a plan of action, but I was adequately refreshed and ready to get going. I should head home, I decided. Whatever insanity had brought me here seemed now to have passed. My resolve seemed to dissipate as I neared the car, however. The gnawing anxiety in the pit of my stomach returned. And then I thought of something, and my hand went to my lips as my mouth fell open. Fiona, I thought. The girl I had been seeing. I realized that she had a look of the Pall Mall girl. For a split second I saw her lying on her back, the way the girl on the poster had been, but with an added detail. Blood. Just a trickle, coming from a cut on her forehead. The eyes were fixed on me, not seductively like the poster girl, but pleadingly. And her hands. Her hands were... I blinked shook my head, and the picture went. Still trembling, I slid into the driver's seat and turned the ignition. Nothing. I kept trying, but the car would not start, and I half wondered if Brenda the waitress would possess a similar magic touch with motor vehicles that she had with cigarette machines. Instead, I thumped the steering wheel once, and once more for good luck. Then I got out and paced while contemplating my next steps. The obvious thing was for me to go back into the cafe, find out if Brenda had the number of a nearby garage, and give it a call. It was late, though, so it might be difficult to get hold of anyone. Then I remembered the sign had said, Beds. If there was a room available, I could stay the night and sort the car out in the morning. But another idea presented itself. One of the lorries was still there, parked up across from me. Perhaps the driver was there in his cabin. He would no doubt be knowledgeable about motor vehicles. If it was a flat battery, he would probably be able to give me a jump start. I immediately headed towards it, hoping that I would not be disturbing or delaying him, and that he would be amenable to helping me. When I was closer, however, I started to feel apprehensive. I could not have explained why, but the lorry, silent and shrouded in shadow from the overhanging trees, unsettled me. There was a dark energy that seemed to pulsate from within, something beyond the hinged wooden door of the goods storage at the back of the lorry. It made me want to turn away from it instantly, and I was about to when a cheerful voice hailed me. All right, my lover? The enormous man from the cafe had emerged from the washing facilities block and was waddling towards me, stepping out of the darkness into the patch of light cast by the lamps at the rear of the building. Now I saw him stood up, the extent of his corpulence was even more impressive, but his face beamed. I'm sorry, he said as he reached me, 
panting slightly from the exertion of that short walk. I thought you was a woman. I saw him properly for the first time. He was clean-shaven, and his plump face gleamed like a wax peach, polished until it shined. He had cartoonish, porcine features, with a broad smile that nearly split the face into two halves, the top containing the pug nose and the squinting eyes, the lower unresolved in the rubber tire of flesh that might once have been a chin. He was wearing what looked to be a British railway driver's cap. Unlike the thin driver I had spoken to, whose dirty overalls were as lived in as his face, this fellow was clad in clean denim dungarees and a smart red, white and blue checked shirt that must have been tent-like, but was tucked neatly into his waistband. There was something vaguely unreal about him, I thought, like a children's book illustration come to life. Everything all right, sir? he asked, and I realised he would be wondering why I was loitering there. No, I'm in a bit of a jam, I said. Bloody car won't start. The expletive was for his benefit. He took the black cap off to reveal a crop of sheep-like woolly hair, and scratched his head. That is a bit of a bastard, he said sympathetically, and I noted the West Country burr in his voice. I don't suppose you could. Oh, aye, sir, by all means I can take a look, he offered already heading over to my car. I lifted the bonnet, and we both stared at the workings. I confessed to knowing nothing about the mechanics of motor vehicles, but nodded along to his various mutterings, as he inspected, prodded, pulled at cables. Eventually he stepped back and drew in a deep breath. Well, sir, he said, looking at me with an absurdly grave expression. You know what's the matter with her, don't you? I shook my head. She's buggered, he said. I must have flailed with despair, for he continued. But never mind, sir, because we found each other, and I never let a fellow down what needed my help. I can give you a ride to Burzelthorpe down the road. You can get a bed at the White Hart and see a mechanic in the morning. I nodded, but... For some reason I was reluctant to go with him. I think I was reluctant to leave the car. He intuited my reticence. Or you can keep here, sir, he suggested. I immediately remembered that the cafe had rooms. Yes, of course, I said. Good idea. Thanks for your help. He was still waiting beside his lorry when I trudged back a minute later with a face like thunder. No luck, sir, he called out, and I found myself bristling slightly at the undisguised joy in his voice. It was all locked up, I replied. I noticed then that the moped I had seen earlier had disappeared, presumably while I had been preoccupied under the bonnet. I don't understand. Sign said they were open all night. He chuckled. Aye, sign says good food, and that's a load of bull and all. Come on, sir. I'll give you a lift to Burzelthorpe, twelve mile down the road. He opened the door on the passenger side of the cabin and held it open for me. Up close he smelled of soap and rubber, engine oil and furniture polish, 
and his pudgy hand patted the small of my back as I clambered in. Our eyes must have fallen on the magazine, splayed open on the passenger seat at the same time, for the lorry driver quickly whisked it away and out of sight. It had lingered long enough for me to see the cover, showing a muscular man, naked apart from a sailor's hat and a posing pouch, under the banner, Fit for Life. Don't pay no attention to that, sir, he puffed. Just the best silliness is all. He said it lightly, but his cheeks were flushed, even rosier than before. Then he slammed the door shut, and I waited for a good minute while he took the long way round the lorry to the driver's door. When he finally emerged and heaved his humongous frame into the cabin, he was wheezy from the effort. Right then, he said, starting the engine. We'll have you tucked up in no time. Jack's cafe was behind us in the rearview mirror when he next spoke, and I was relieved, for I felt anxious and awkward. Anxious about leaving my car behind, awkward at the uncomfortable silence that had fallen between us in the dark and intimate enclosure of the cabin. Down here on business, are you, sir? he said, or is it pleasure? Oh, business, I replied airily. All right. Let me guess. Commercial traveller. Yes, that's it, I said, although it was not my line of work at all. Very clever. Bit of a Sherlock Holmes, I see. I, I don't know who that is, sir, he said. I don't keep up with current affairs and such. No, I just thought, man of the road, big boot on his car, soft hands, never done a day's hard graft, and that's not criticism, sir, because why would you, sir, if you didn't have to? And then I puts two and two together is all. Mind you, he suddenly thrust his pudgy left hand at me with such force that I flinched. Feel this, he said, grinning manically. Go on, feel that hand. Reluctantly, I acceded, gingerly touching it with my extended index finger. It was the slightest of touches, as one might approach hot metal. The hand, I felt, was pink, white, fleshy, and oddly smooth. The fingers like pale sausages, the palm not unclean exactly, but with faint lines of motor oil visible in every crease. I noticed, too, the tarnished ring on the fourth finger, too tight now, possibly irremovable, the skin bulging around it. Soft, innit? He said proudly. Bet you didn't expect that. Do you want to know the secret? I stared at him blankly. It's none of your bloody beeswax, he cried. <laughs> startling me again. The booming laugh that followed shook the cabin, then descended into a wheezing coughing fit. <coughs> oh, just pulling your leg, sir, he said. Have a look in the glove compartment. Go on. I opened it and found it stuffed with an astonishing variety of hats and gloves and books and whatnot. But among a few items that slipped out was a large rusted tin of beeswax furniture polish. There you go, he grinned. Bloody beeswax, and you've never felt hands so soft, have you? Try some on you if you like, but put it back after. 
If them that makes fancy skin creams finds out, they'll have me killed to stop word going round, putting them out of business. <laughs> I feigned amusement, and wedged the tin back where I had found it, pushing the compartment door shut with some difficulty. Married man, are you? I asked. The chap was so strange that it seemed unlikely, but I remembered my grandmother saying that for every Jack there's a Jill. Ah, you saw the ring then, he replied. Deed I was married once, long time ago now, mind. It was a mistake. As I always says, everyone's entitled to make one as long as they learns from it. I'm married to the road now. Twenty years, man and boy. She can be harsh, mistress, but a fair one. She ain't never let me down yet, sir, no, sir. And what about you? Oh, confirmed bachelor, I'm afraid, I said. I saw the flicker of something cross the driver's face. A hopeful look. There's a girl, of course. Oh, of course, sir, he nodded. Handsome fellow like you. Bet you has to fight him off. I saw her again. The girl who looked like the cigarette girl. The fearful, pleading eyes. Oh, I don't know about that, I scoffed. I suppose you was on your way home to her, he said, adding with a sly smirk. Or was you trying to get away from her? I smiled uneasily. Just down on business. No, I've never wanted to settle down neither. I think you're either that type or you ain't. My old ma used to say to me, your problem is you likes your own company too much. So you don't get lonely then, I said. That's good. I would have thought your job must be terribly lonely sometimes. Oh, I don't mean to say I don't get lonely, sir, no, sir, he explained, becoming animated. No, I does get very lonely, but that's one of the things I likes about doing this job. He gets to meet people on the road, all kinds. Oh, look at us for starters. I looked at him dubiously. If you hadn't have been stranded in Jack's car park like that, I wouldn't have you in my cabin now being able to have this nice conversation with you, he explained. No, we're all the same, us men of the road. Don't matter what class or race or whatever. He needed my help and I was only too happy to extend help in answer. And I shall be forever in your debt, I said, immediately regretting having implied an obligation on my part. After that, the cabin fell silent for a time. The only sound was the rumble of the road beneath the lorry's tyres, the occasional brush of overhanging branches against the roof. It's quite late, I said eventually, looking at my wristwatch. Are you sure the pub, what did you call it, White Hart? White Hart, sir, yes, sir. Are you sure it'll still be open? If you're lucky, sir, and if not... I've got no objections if you wants to sleep in here with me. My jaw must have dropped, for he immediately continued. Oh, taint the writ, sir, I knows that. But it's cosy, even cosier with two. Tell the truth, sir. I ain't slept in an honest-to-goodness proper bed for nigh on ten, eleven years now, man and boy. I just sleeps in the cabin. Don't think I'd know how to sleep in a regular bed, even if you paid me. I noticed his seat. It's leather-worn, and with a permanent depression into which his enormous back slotted perfectly. It took no effort to imagine the leather under his buttocks having formed similar massive craters. 
So, um, what have you got in the back? I said, more to change the subject than out of any genuine interest. He shook his head. I don't ask those sorts of questions, sir, he said, gravely. I just guess the thing where it needs to go. Surely you have to get out and unload. No, 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 sir, he said, still shaking his head. No, I don't play no part in that, sir. No, they pays me to drive. I don't stick my nose in where it ain't wanted. See, funny thing is, I'm not a curious fellow, sir. Not by nature. I've never been what you might call a deep thinker. <laughs> Mind you, that's probably why I drives this flaming lorry and you... Paused. What did you say you did again, sir? Commercial traveller, I replied quickly. That's it, he said. And for the first time I saw a trace of something in the face that was hard to define. Something not necessarily sinister, but purposeful and steely. I looked desperately out of the window hoping to see a road sign or something to indicate we had nearly reached the town. But there was nothing. Next I glanced down into the footwell, and could just make out the outline of an object resting on the floor between my feet. Absently I nudged it with my shoe, bringing it out of the shadow and into the light, just enough to see it was a knife of some sort. A flick knife. It must have fallen out before when I had opened the glove compartment. She good looking then, he said. This girlfriend of yours, she got a name? Um, Fiona, I said, looking up. Fiona, he repeated. Bugger me, what a coincidence. I had not of that name. She weren't good looking, mind. Ugly as sin. You should have seen the bloody size of her too. Fat as you like. Dead now, of course. Fell down the stairs, God love her. The words hit me like a lightning bolt. He was still talking, but my mind was elsewhere. Memory had returned in a tumble of sounds and images that came so suddenly I nearly recoiled from the force. I knew now that I had been with Fiona at her flat. No, no at my flat. And there had been a meal, music playing, wine poured. I saw her vividly now, stunning in a black dress, the same seductive smile as the Pall Mall model. But I had said something that upset her, and I, I had misspoken, and she had taken it the wrong way, the way girls like that always do, getting all high and mighty. And then, the argument. She was walking away, storming out, and I had grabbed her by the arm, we were at the top of the stairs. I'm not sure what happened next. But she was falling. Falling down the stairs. And when I caught up with her, she was bleeding. In pain. But the look in her eyes was all fire and accusatory. It said, You did this. You. And then I put my hand over her mouth. Everything all right, sir? I blinked the horrible image away. Yes. Just tired, I muttered. Are we nearly there? 
I looked out of the window at my side, but it was difficult to see much. It was so dark. But the sound of the road had changed from tarmac to grit and grass. Ahead, through the windscreen, in the headlights gleam, I saw only a dense mass of forest. We had stopped. The lorry driver turned the engine off, and with it, the lights. The world around us was plunged into darkness. Where the hell are we? I snapped. Oh, I'm sorry, sir, he said. I hope you don't mind. Sorry? Mind what? What the hell are you playing at? There ain't no white art, sir, he said, ruefully. There ain't no Bursal thought, neither. I thought of my car, parked in the lonely car park, the dead body of Fiona in the boot. My mind reeled. Whatever had possessed me to go off in this stranger's lorry? He saw the pained expression on my face. Oh, taint like that, sir, he blurted. Oh, I don't want to hurt you nor nothing. He placed a plump hand on my upper thigh. Shiver ran down my spine, and I inched away, repulsed. It's just... Well, we're both men on our own, ain't we? Miles from home, lonely-like. We thought we could keep each other company. I reached behind me, meaning to find the door handle and let myself out. But I found only cold, hard metal, twisting in my seat, searching frantically with my fingers. I realized there was no handle inside, just a patch of lump and metal where it had been patched over. With a sickening feeling in my gut, I remembered he had opened the door from the outside himself when he let me in. That, said the lorry driver, that's always been like that. With my feet, I felt for the flick knife on the floor. If I needed to, if I acted quickly, I could grab it and stick it right in the driver's fat face. After all, I thought, I've killed once. I can kill again. I've got nothing, nothing to lose. Please, sir, you must forgive me, the man continued. I knows I'm not everyone's cup of tea and certainly not what a chap like you normally goes for but well I'm soft hearted and you already knows I'm soft handed and I'm I'm right considerate how I goes about it unlike some I can mention and it seems to me we're both the same ain't we two fellow travellers under this big old moon I should have stabbed him then. But there was something so pitiful and desperate about his demeanour that I could only stare back incredulously. There was a pleading quality in those dark, shining eyes that reminded me of... Fiona. All at once it came back to me. I knew now what had happened and why I had felt so torn about leaving the car. She wasn't dead. I had tied her up and gagged her, meaning to take her away, somewhere neutral, away from the flat, from the city, from her parents who hated me, 
and her friends who tried to warn her off me. If I could talk to her and make her see, then there was still a chance. I would get back to the car, set her free, explain how it was all a silly misunderstanding, and she might forgive me. She had a temper too, and would understand how people with tempers can be. And even if she didn't, well, she'd go to the police, of course, but we would have to cross that bridge when we came to it, I reasoned. What mattered was, I was not a murderer. Look, I said aloud, you've got me all wrong. I'm not that way. <sighs> no one is at first, he said. It's the road what does it. Take me back to my car, I said firmly. And if you don't want to do that, let me out and I'll bloody well walk. Oh, go on, sir, he said. Let's just have a quick little cuddle and say no more about it. A cuddle? No funny business, I said. If you like, he replied. And then you'll take me back to my car. Wherever you want to go, sir. I frowned. Just a cuddle, he said. Taint no harm in it. Think of it as two brothers who ain't met in a dog's age. I sighed to say, go on then. And before I knew it, his giant arms were outstretched and the beaming face loomed towards me. He gathered me to him and my nostrils were full of his smell of soap and oil and rubber and wax and meat. He crooned softly in my ear and rocked me from side to side. I expected that vast expanse of flesh to yield, and it did, but in an entirely unexpected and deeply unpleasant way, like wet cement. I was quickly engulfed by the man. His body seemed to spread uncomfortably around me, and at the same time I was aware that I was completely unable to resist. His thick hands had me locked in position. Preposterously I thought of those plump fingers lathered in beeswax, and how I should slip free like a bar of soap escaping wet hands, but there was no escaping the vice of his grip. I felt a hot, searing pain, and the gut-twisting agony as the first bones began to crack inside of me. His grip grew tighter and tighter, and I knew I could not speak, could not scream, or I could not breathe. I was suddenly aware of every internal part of me, all the dark, glistening, pulsing parts that drive the body. The purples and greys we are only ever dimly aware of until they fail us, all contorting and screaming and exploding at once. Something like tears spilled from my eyes. The lorry driver's head pressed hard and wet against my cheek and shoulder, and he was breathing heavily. I'm sorry. He wept. I'm sorry, my lover.
The lorry driver has put seventy miles between him and the events of the night before. What is left of the man is in the back of the lorry, apart from his nice watch. That was too small to fit around the driver's fat wrist, so it sits on the dash, next to the railwayman's hat. Another souvenir. Really, he has no use for a watch, for he can tell the time by how hungry he is. For the lorry driver, loneliness and hungriness are not two feelings he has confused. They are one and the same. He thinks about the man's car, and vaguely wonders what type of selling the man was involved in, and what prizes he might have found if he had looked in the boot. It is idle speculation to pass the time. He is not curious by nature. The car is for someone else to discover. Hours from now. Even a day. Maybe longer. A song plays on the radio. Already an old song. It is a song he knows. He sings along cheerfully. I am a man of means man by no means. By no means. He is cheerful because of the sign he passed three minutes ago. The sign saying, Services, two miles. The click, click, click of the indicator. Today's story was Fellow Traveller by Jasper Lestrange. It was read by Jasper Lestrange. If you enjoy the show and would like to support me, there are several ways you can do so. You can make a one-off donation through Ko-fi. You can join as a YouTube channel member or become a patron on Patreon and make a monthly contribution, gaining access to exclusive content. Liking, commenting, sharing and subscribing all help the channel grow. Thank you for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>